Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good morning, good evening, or good night, you lovely people. I hope your Monday is starting off strong, just like a delicious tea or a powerful coffee. If you're new, welcome, and I'm your host, The Tale Teller. And today, I'm narrating a wonderful novel titled The Soul of Lilith, written in 1903 by Mary Corelli. I'll be reading two chapters today, and another two to three chapters after that, and so forth. But I want your feedback as we go along. If you do or don't like this story, I can move on to another novel, and call this one quits, or do something completely different. Whether I continue is up to you lovelies and my Patreons, of course. This novel shares the tale of a mystic named El Raimi, a practitioner of the arts of healing drawn from the occult, involving ancient Egyptians and a plot that explores soul theft and manipulation of a unique girl. El Raimi is quite the character and one that I, so far, have thoroughly enjoyed playing. So join me. Give me your feedback via reviews or emails because I want to know what you think. Now sit back and let's listen to two chapters from The Soul of Lilith. Enjoy. The following story does not assume to be what is generally understood by a novel. It is simply the account of a strange and daring experiment once actually attempted, and is offered to those who were interested in the unseen possibilities of the hereafter merely for what it is. A single episode in the life of a man who voluntarily sacrificed his whole worldly career in a supreme effort to prove the apparently unprovable. The Soul of Lilith, Chapter 1 The theatre was full, crowded from floor to ceiling. The lights were turned low to give the stage full prominence, and a large audience packed close in pit and gallery as well, as in balcony and stalls listened, with or without interest. Whichever way best suited their different temperaments and manner of breeding to the well-worn famous soliloquy in Hamlet. To be or not to be. It was the first night of a new rendering of Shakespeare's ever-puzzling play. The chief actor was a great actor, albeit not admittedly as such by the petty cliques. He had thought out the strange and complex character of the psychological Dane for himself, with the result that even the listless, languid, generally impassive occupants of the stalls, many of whom had no doubt heard a hundred hamlets, were roused for once out of their chronic state of boredom into something like attention. As the familiar lines fell on their ears, with a slow and meditative richness of accent, not changing his position, not commonly heard on the modern stage, this new Hamlet chose his attitudes well, instead of walking, or rather strutting about, as he uttered the soliloquy, he seated himself and for a moment seemed lost in silent thought. Then, without changing his position, he began, his voice gathering deep earnestness, as the beauty and solemnity of the immortal lines became more pronounced and concentrated. 
To die. To sleep. To sleep. Perchance to dream, I. There's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. Here there was a brief and impressive silence. In that short interval, and before the actor could resume his speech, a man entered the theatre with noiseless step, and seated himself in a vacant stall of the second row. A few heads were instinctively turned to look at him, but in the semi-gloom of the auditorium his features could scarcely be discerned, and Hamlet's sad, rich voice again compelled attention. Who would Fardell's bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to the others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. The scene went on to the despairing interview with Ophelia, which was throughout performed with such splendid force and feeling as to awaken a perfect hurricane of applause. Then the curtain went down, the lights went up, the orchestra recommenced, and again inquisitive eyes were turned towards the latest newcomer in the stalls, who had made his quiet entrance in the very midst of the great philosophical soliloquy. He was immediately discovered to be a person well worth observing, and observed he was accordingly, though he seemed quite unaware of the attention he was attracting. Yet he was singular-looking enough to excite a little curiosity, even among modern fashionable Londoners, who are accustomed to see all sorts of eccentric beings, both male and female, aesthetic and commonplace. And he was so distinctly separated from ordinary folk by his features and bearing, at the rather loud whisper of an irrepressible young American woman, I'd give worlds to know who that man is, was almost pardonable under the circumstances. His skin was dark as a mulatto's, yet smooth and healthily coloured by the warm blood flushing through the olive tint. His eyes seemed black, but could scarcely be seen on account of the extreme length and thickness of their dark lashes. The fine, rather scornful curve of his short upper lip was partially hidden by a black moustache. And with all this blackness and darkness about his face, his hair, of which he seemed to have an extraordinary profusion, was perfectly white. Not merely a silvery white, but a white as pronounced as that of a bit of washed fleece or newly fallen snow. In looking at him, it was impossible to decide whether he was old or young, because though he carried no wrinkles or other defacing marks of time's power to destroy, his features wore an impress of such stern and deeply resolved thought, as is seldom or 
never the heritage of those whom youth still belongs. Nevertheless, he seemed a long way off from being old, so that altogether he was a puzzle to his neighbours in the stalls, as well as to certain fair women in the boxes, who levelled their opera glasses at him with a pettinacity which might have made him uncomfortably self-conscious had he looked up. Only he did not look up. He leaned back in his seat with a slightly listless air, studied his program intently, and appeared half asleep, owing to the way in which his eyelids drooped and the drowsy sweep of his lashes. The irrepressible American girl almost forgot Hamlet, so absorbed was she in staring at him in spite of the sotto voce remonstrances of her decorous mother who sat beside her, and presently, as if aware of or annoyed by her scrutiny, he lifted his eyes and looked full at her. With an instinctive movement she recoiled, and her own eyes fell. Never in all her giddy, thoughtless little life had she seen such fiery, brilliant, night-black orbs. They made her feel uncomfortable, gave her the creeps, as she afterwards declared. She shivered, drawing her satin opera wrap more closely about her, and stared at the stranger no more. He soon removed his piercing gaze from her to the stage, for the now great play scene of Hamlet was in progress and was from first to last a triumph for the actor chiefly concerned. At the next fall of the curtain, a fair, dissipated-looking young fellow leaned over from the third row of stalls and touched the white-haired individual lightly on the shoulder. My dear El Raimi, you here at a theatre? Why, I should never have thought you capable of indulging in such frivolity. Do you consider Hamlet frivolous? queried the other, rising from his seat to shake hands and showing himself to be a man of medium height, though having such peculiar dignity of carriage as made him appear taller than he really was. Well, no. And the other man yawned rather effusively. To tell you the truth, I find him insufferably dull. You do? And the person addressed as El Raimi smiled slightly. Well, naturally you go with the opinions of your age. You would no doubt prefer a burlesque. Frankly speaking, I should. And now I begin to think of it, I don't know really why I came here. I had intended to look in at the Empire. There's a new ballot going on there. But a fellow at the club gave me this stall, said it was a first night and all the rest of it. And so... And so fate decided for you. Finished El Remy sedately. And instead of admiring the pretty ladies without proper clothing at the Empire... You find yourself here, wondering why the deuce Hamlet the Dane could not find anything better to do than bother himself about his father's ghost. Exactly. But being here, you are here for a purpose, my friend. And he lowered his voice to a confident whisper. Look, over there, observe her well. Sits your future wife. And he indicated by the slightest possible nod the American girl before alluded to. Yes, the pretty creature in pink with dark hair. You don't know her? No, of course you don't. But you will. 
She will be introduced to you tonight, before you leave this theater. Don't look so startled. There's nothing malicious about her. I assure you, she is merely Miss Chester's, only daughter of Jabez Chester, the latest New York millionaire, a charming, shallow, delightfully useless, but enormously wealthy little person. You will propose to her within a month, and you will be accepted. A very good match for you, Forgan. All your debts paid, and everything set straight with certain people. Nothing could be better, really. And remember, I am the first to congratulate you. He spoke rapidly with a smiling, easy air of conviction. His friend, meanwhile, stared at him in profound amazement and something of fear. By Jove, Earl Raimi, he began nervously. You know, this is a little too much of a good thing. It's all very well to play a prophet sometimes, but it can be overdone. Pardon. And El Raimi turned to resume his seat. The play begins again, insufferably dull as Hamlet may be, we are bound to give him some slight measure of attention. Vorgan forced a careless smile in response and threw himself indolently back in his own stall, but he looked annoyed and puzzled. His eyes wandered from the back of El Raimi's white head to the half-seen profile of the American heiress who had just been so coolly and convincingly pointed out to him as his future wife. I don't know the girl from Adam, he thought irritably, and I don't want to know her. In fact, I won't know her, and if I won't, why, I shan't know her. Will is everything, even according to El Remy. This fellow's always so confoundedly positive of his prophecies, I should like to confute him for once and prove him wrong. Thus he mused, scarcely heeding the progress of Shakespeare's great tragedy till... At the close of the scene of Ophelia's burial, he saw Aramy rise and prepare to leave the auditorium. He at once rose himself. Are you going? He asked. Yes. I do not care for Hamlet's end or for anybody's end in this particular play. I don't like the hasty and wholesale slaughter that concludes the piece. It is inartistic. Shakespeare, inartistic? Queried Vaughan, smiling. Why, yes, sometimes. He was a man, not a god, and no man's work could be absolutely perfect. Shakespeare had his faults like everybody else, and with his great genius, he would have been the first to own them. It is only your little mediocrities who are never wrong. Are you going also? Yes, I mean, to damage your reputation as a prophet, and avoid the chance of an introduction to Miss Chester, for this evening, at any rate. He laughed as he spoke, but El Remy said nothing. The two passed out of the stalls together into the lobby, where they had to wait a few minutes to get their hats and overcoats, the man in charge of the cloakroom having gone to cool his chronic thirst at the convenient bar. Vorgan made use of the enforced delay to light his cigar. Do you think it a good Hamlet? He asked his companion carelessly while thus occupied. Excellent, replied El Remy. The leading actor has immense talent and thoroughly appreciates the subtlety of the art he has to play, but his supporters are all sticks. Hence the scenes drag where he himself is not in them. 
That is the worst of the star system, a system which is perfectly ruinous to histrionic art. Still, no matter how it is performed, Hamlet is always interesting, curiously inconsistent too, but impressive. Inconsistent? How? asked Vorgan, beginning to puff rings of smoke into the air, and to wonder impatiently how much longer the keeper of the cloakroom meant to stay absent from his post. Oh, in many ways, perhaps the most glaring inconsistency of the whole conception comes out in the great soliloquy. To be or not to be. Really? said Vorgan, and Vorgan became interested. I thought that was considered one of the finest bits in the play. So it is. I am not speaking of the lines themselves, which are magnificent, but of their connection with Hamlet's own character. Why does he talk of a born from whence no traveller returns, when he has, or thinks he has, proof positive of the return of his own father in spiritual form? <sighs> and it is just concerning that return that he make all the pother. <sighs> and it is just concerning that return that he makes all the pother. Don't you see inconsistency there? Of course, but I never thought of it, said Vorkin, staring. I don't believe anyone but yourself has ever thought of it. It is quite unaccountable. He certainly does say no traveller returns, and he says it after he has seen the ghost, too. Yes, went on Oremi, warming with his subject. And he talked of the dread of something after death, as if it were only a dread and not a fact. Whereas if he is to believe the spirit of his own father, which he declares is an honest ghost, there is no possibility of doubt on the matter. Does not the mournful phantom say? But that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house. I could a tale unfold whose lightest words would harrow up thy soul, freezing thy young blood, making thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end. By Jove, I say, Elramy, don't look at me like that, exclaimed Vorgan uneasily, backing away from a too close proximity to the brilliant flashing eyes and absorbed face of his companion, who had recited the lines with extraordinary passion and solemnity. Elremi laughed. <laughs> Did I scare you? Was I too much in earnest? I beg your pardon. True enough, this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood, but the something after death was a peculiarly aggravating reality to that poor ghost, and Hamlet knew that it was so when he spoke of it, as a mere dread. Thus, as I say, he was inconsistent, or rather, Shakespeare did not argue the case logically. You would make a capital actor, said Vorgan, still gazing at him in astonishment. Why, you went on just now as if, well, as if you meant it, you know? So I did mean it, replied Ilremi lightly, for the moment. I always find Hamlet a rather absorbing study. So will you, perhaps, when you are my age. Your age? And Vorgan shrugged his shoulders. I wish I knew it. 
Why, nobody knows it. You may be thirty or a hundred, who can tell? Or two hundred? Or even three hundred? Queried El Ramey, which a touch of satire in his tone. Why, stint the measure of limitless time. But here comes our recalcitrant knave. This, as the keeper of the cloakroom made his appearance from a side door with a perfectly easy and unembarrassed air, as though he had done rather a fine thing than otherwise in keeping two gentlemen waiting, his pleasure. Let us get our coats and be well away before the decree of fate can be accomplished in making you the winner of the desirable Chester Prize. It is delightful to conquer fate, if one can. His black eyes flashed curiously, and Vaughan paused in the act of throwing on his overcoat to look at him again in something of doubt and dread. At that moment, a gay voice exclaimed, Why, here's Vaughan! Freddy Vaughan! How lucky! And a big handsome man of about two or three and thirty sauntered into the lobby from the theatre, followed by two ladies. Look here, Vaughan, you're just the fellow I wanted to see. We've left Hamlet in the thick of his fight because we're going on to the summer's ball. Will you come with us? And I say, Vaughan, and I say, Vaughan, allow me to introduce to you my friends, Mrs. Jabez Chester, Miss Edina Chester, Sir Frederick Vaughan. For one instant, Vaughan stood inert and stupefied. The next, he remembered himself and bowed mechanically. His presentation to the Chesters was thus suddenly affected by his cousin, Lord Melthorpe, to whom he was indebted for many favours, and whom he could not afford to offend by any show of bresquerie. As soon as the necessary salutations were exchanged, however, he looked round vaguely and in a sort of superstitious terror for the man who had so surely prophesied this introduction, but El Remy was gone. Silently and without ado, he had departed, having seen his word fulfilled. Who is the gentleman that has just left you? asked Miss Chester, smiling prettily up to Vaughan's eyes, as she accepted his proffered arm to lead her to the carriage. Such a distinguished-looking, dreadful person. Vaughan smiled at this description. He is certainly rather singular in personal appearance. He began when his cousin, Lord Melthorpe, interrupted him. You mean El Ramey? It was El Ramey, wasn't it? Ah, uh, I thought so. Why did he give us the slip, I wonder? I wish he had waited a minute. He is a most interesting fellow. But who is he? persisted Miss Chester. She was now comfortably ensconced in her luxurious brougham. Her mother besides her and two men of title opposite to her a position which exactly suited the aspirations of her soul. How very tiresome you both are. You don't explain him a bit. You only say he is interesting, and of course one can see that. People with such white hair and such black eyes are always interesting, don't you think so? Well, I don't see why they should be, said Lord Melthorpe dubiously. Now just think what horrible chaps albinos are and they have white hair and pink eyes. Oh, don't drift off on the subject of albinos, please, pleaded Miss Chester with a soft laugh. <laughs> if you do, I shall never know anything about this particular person. Hell, Ramey, did you say? 
Isn't it a very odd name? Easton, of course. Oh, yes. He is a pure oriental thoroughbred, replied Lord Melthorpe, who took the burden of the conversation upon himself, while he inwardly wondered why his cousin Vaughan was in such an evidently taciturn mood. That is, I mean, he is an oriental of the very old stock, not one of the modern Indian mixtures of vice and knavery, but when he came from the east, and why he came from the east, I don't suppose anyone could tell you. I have only met him two or three times in society, and on those occasions he managed to perplex and fascinate a good many people. My wife, for instance, thinks him quite a marvellous man. She always asks him to her parties, but he hardly ever comes. His name in full is El Remy Zaranos, though I believe he is best known as El Remy, simply. And what is he? asked Miss Chester. An artist? A literary celebrity? Neither, that I'm aware of indeed. I do not know what he is or how he lives. I have always looked upon him as a sort of magician, a kind of private conjurer, you know. Dear me, said fat Mrs. Chester, working up from a semi-doze and trying to get interested in the subject. Does he do drawing-room tricks? Oh no, he doesn't do tricks. And Lord Melthorpe looked a little amused. He isn't that sort of man at all. I am afraid I explained myself badly. I mean that he can tell you extraordinary things about your past and your future. Oh, by your hand, I know. And the pretty Edina nodded her head sagaciously. There really is something awfully clever in palmistry. I can tell fortunes that way. Can you? Lord Melthorpe smiled indulgently and went on. But it so happens that Eremi does not tell anything by the hands. He judges by the face, figure, and movement. He doesn't make a profession of it, but really, he does foretell events in rather a curious way now and then. He certainly does, agreed Vorgan, rousing himself from a reverie into which he had fallen and fixing his eyes on the small, piquant features of the girl opposite him. Some of his prophecies are quite remarkable. Really? How very delightful, said Miss Chester, who was fully aware of Sir Frederick's intent, almost searching gaze, but pretended to be absorbed in buttoning one of her gloves. I must ask him to tell me what sort of fate is in store for me. Something awful, I'm positive. Don't you think he has horrid eyes? Splendid, but horrid. He looked at me in the theatre, you know. My dear, you looked at him first, murmured Mrs. Chester. Yes, but I'm sure I didn't make him shiver. Now, when he looked at me, I felt as if someone were pouring cold water very slowly down my back. It was such a creepy sensation. Do fasten this, mother, will you? And she extended the hand with the refractory glove upon it, to Mrs. Chester, but Vaughan promptly interposed. Uh, allow me. Oh, well, if you know how to fix a button that is almost off, she said laughingly with a blush that well became her transparent skin. I can make an attempt, said Vaughan with due humility. If I succeed, will you give me one or two dances presently? With pleasure. Oh, 
You are coming into the summers then, said Lord Millthorpe in a pleased tone. That's right. You know, Fred, you're so absent-minded tonight that you never said yes or no when I asked you to accompany us. Didn't I? I'm awfully sorry. And having fastened the glove with careful daintiness, he smiled. Please, set down my rudeness and distractions to the uncanny influence of El Raimi. I can't imagine any other reason. They all laughed carelessly, as people in an idle humour laugh at trifles, and the carriage bore them on to their destination, a great house in Queensgate, where a magnificent entertainment was being held in honour of some serene and exalted potentate who had taken it into his head to see how London amused itself during a season. The foreign potentate had heard that the splendid English capital was full of gloom and misery, that its women were unapproachable and its men difficult to make friends with. And all these erroneous notions had to be dispersed in his serene and exalted brain, no matter what his education cost the upper ten who undertook to enlighten his barbarian ignorance. Meanwhile, the subject of Lord Melthorpe's conversation, Ilremi, or Ilremi Zaranos, as he was called by those of his own race, was walking quietly homeward with that firm, swift, yet apparently unhastening pace, which so often distinguishes the desert-born savage, and so seldom gives grace to the deportment of the cultured citizen. It was a mild night in May. The weather was unusually fine and warm. The skies were undarkened by any mist or cloud, and the stars shone forth with as much brilliancy as though the city lying under their immediate ken had been the smiling fairy Florence instead of the brooding giant London. Now and again, El Remy raised his eyes to the sparkling belt of Orion, which glittered aloft with a luster that is seldom seen in the hazy English air. He was thinking his own thoughts, and the fact that there were many passers to and fro in the streets besides himself did not appear to disturb him in the least, for he strode through their ranks without any hurry or jostling, as if he alone existed, and they were but shadows. For what fools are the majority of men? He mused. How easy to gull them, and how willing they are to be gulled. How that silly young Vorgan marvelled at my prophecy of his marriage. As if it were not as easy to foretell as that two and two inevitably make four, given the characters of people in the same way that you give figures, and you are certain to arrive at a sum total of them in time. How simple the process of calculation as to Vorgan's matrimonial prospects. Here are the set of numerals I employed. Two nights ago I heard Lord Melthorpe say he meant to marry his cousin Fred to Miss Chester, daughter of Jabez Chester of New York. Miss Chester herself entered the room a few minutes later on, and I saw the sort of young woman she was. Tonight at the theatre I see her again, in an opposite box, well back in the shadows. I perceive Lord Melthorpe. Young Vorgan, whose character I know to be of such weakness that it can be moulded whichever way a stronger will turns it, sits close behind me, and I proceed to make the little sum total. Given Lord Melthorpe, 
with a determination that resembles the obstinacy of a pig rather than of a man, Frederick Vaughan with no determination at all, and the little Chester girl with her heart set on an English title, even though it only be that of a baronet, and the marriage is certain. What was uncertain was the possibility of their all meeting tonight, but they were all there and I counted that possibility as the fraction over. There is always a fraction over in character sums. It stands as a providence or fate, and must always be allowed for. I chanced it, and won. I always do win in these things. These ridiculous trifles of calculation, which are actually accepted as prophetic utterances by people who never will think out anything for themselves, Good heavens, what a monster burden of crass ignorance and willful stupidity this poor planet has groaned under ever since it was hurled into space. Immense, incalculable, and for what purpose? For what progress? For what end? He stopped a moment. He had walked from the Strand up through Piccadilly and was now close to Hyde Park. Taking out his watch, he glanced at the time. It was close upon midnight. All at once, he was struck fiercely from behind, and the watch he had held was snatched from his hand by a man who had no sooner committed the theft than he had uttered a loud cry and remained inert and motionless. El Remy turned quietly around and surveyed him. Well, my friend, he inquired blandly, what did you do that for? The fellow stared about him vaguely, but seemed unable to answer. His arm was stiffly outstretched, and the watch was clutched fast within his palm. You had better give that little piece of property back to me, went on El Remy, coldly smiling, and stepping close up to his assailant, he undid the closed fingers one by one and, removing the watch, restored it to his own pocket. The thief's arm at the same moment fell limply at his side, but he remained where he was, trembling violently as though seized with a sudden org fit. You would find it an inconvenient thing to have about you, I assure you. Stolen goods are always more or less of a bore, I believe. You seem rather discomposed. Ah, you have had a little shock, that's all. You've heard of torpedoes, I dare say. Well, in this scientific age of ours, there are human torpedoes going about, and I am one of them. It is necessary to be careful whom you touch nowadays. It really is, you know. You will be better presently. Take time. He spoke batteringly, observing the thief meanwhile with the most curious air, as though he were some peculiar specimen of beetle or frog. The wretched man's features worked convulsively, and he made a gesture of appeal. You won't have me took off, he muttered hoarsely. I'm starving. No, no, said El Remy persuasively. You are nothing of the sort. Do not tell lies, my friend. That is a great mistake. 
as great a mistake as thieving. Both things, as you practice them, will put you to no end of trouble, and to avoid trouble is the chief aim of modern life. You are not starving. You are as plump as a rabbit. And with a dexterous touch, he threw up the man's loose shirt sleeve and displayed the full, firm flesh of the strong and sinewy arm beneath. You have had more meat in you today than I can manage in a week. You will do very well. You are a professional thief. A sort of lawyer, shall we say? Only instead of protesting the right you have to live politely by means of documents and red tape, you assert it roughly by stealing a watch. It's very frank conduct, but it is not civil, and in the present state of ethics it doesn't pay. It really doesn't. I'm afraid I'm boring you. You feel better? Then, good evening. He was about to resume his walk when the now-recovered Ruff took a hasty step towards him. I wanted to knock ye down, he began. I know you did, returned El Ramey composedly. Well, would you like to try again? The man stared at him half in amazement, half in fear. You see, he went on, you pulled out your watch and it was all jewels and sparkles. And it was a glittering temptation, finished El Ramey. I see. I had no business to pull it out, I grant it, but being pulled out, you had no business to want it. We were both wrong. Let us both endeavour to be wiser in the future. Good night. Well, I'm blowed if you're not a rummin, and an awful one, ejaculated the man, who had certainly received a fright, and was still nervous from the effects of it. Blowed if he ain't the rummest card. But the rummest card heard none of his observations. He crossed the road and went on his way serenely, taking up the thread of his interrupted musings as though nothing had occurred. Fools, fools all, he murmured. Thieves, steal, murderers slay, laborers toil, and all men and women lost and live and die. To what purpose, for what progress, for what end? Destruction or new life? Heaven or hell, wisdom or caprice, kindness or cruelty, God or the devil, which, if I knew that, I should be wise, but till I know, I am but a fool also. A fool among fools, fooled by a fate whose secret I mean to discover and conquer and defy. He paused, and drawing a long deep breath, raised his eyes to the stars once more. His lips moved as though he repeated inwardly some vow or prayer. Then he proceeded at a quicker pace, and stopped no more till he reached his destination, which was a small, quiet and unfashionable square of Sloan Street. He made his way to an unpretentious-looking little house, semi-detached and one of a row of similar buildings. The only particularly distinctive mark about it being a heavy and massively curved ancient oaken door, which opened easily at the turn of his latch key, and closed after him without the slightest sound as he entered.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed it and thanks for listening. This is one of my audiobook episodes, and as mentioned at the beginning, I'll continue this further unless otherwise told by you lovelies. It's a big one as well. I think there's 44 chapters, but totally worth it, I think. Now, speaking of things of value, are my Patreon supporters. You can be one, by the way, by supporting this show as much as $5 dues a month. And I put that dollar due straight into production costs like podcasts and web hosting and stuff like that. If that's not your cup of tea, then an iTunes review goes a long way. Now, for my legends. Firstly, I want to thank my old night tea titan, the colossus supporter, Matteo the Marvelous, one who pitches this podcast like a javelin, skyward and homebound, to new and distant lands. I've been exploring new no-sleep stories to share, old Guttenberg tales like this one, and so much more. This donation has single-handedly let me purchase Filmora with a different kind of license, so I'm learning to use that as well. It's essentially an editing tool to make YouTube videos again, but this time with a different style to them. I'm also continuing to donate to old-time radio archives, and believe me, they definitely need it. And all around, mate, you're shaping this show, Matto. You're making a big difference, and one that you'll see over time. Thanks again, buddy. Also, an honourable mention to Majestic Maya, my previous Odenite Tea Titan. Thank you very, very much, mate. Now, onto my megastar monster, my white tea warlord, long arm Lezza, the king hitter of warlords. Thanks to you, man, I've been able to get access to even more music and even more talent when it comes to subtle audio vocals, plus smaller filters like D-Clicking Pro. I always keep my ear to the ground when it comes to new tools, and I've been exploring AI writing alongside all of this. A lot happening, mate, behind the scenes, and it's all thanks to your lovely support. Thank you immensely, Lezza. You are epic. And the brilliant tea aficionados that support this show, that put a pip in my step, my Grain forces, I'm lucky to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. I also want to mention, if you ever wanted to send anything to me, right, you actually can now. I've gone ahead and I've grabbed a P.O. box. So you can send me envelope-sized things, usually, or something a bit bigger, to this address. P.O. Box 197, Gosnells, WA 6990. And anything I get in the mail, I am definitely going to share with you all here. And that's something that's supported by my Patreons. Thanks for helping me make it happen. And thank you all Patreons for supporting me in general, as I am just some Aussie bloke in the southern hemisphere of the world sharing tales to wonderful people like you. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail, but remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plot line. That's the magic of storytelling, like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next, we meet.